This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome to The Beauty of Horror, a podcast dedicated to exploring the unsettling beauty found within our favorite genre. Each episode, I will sit down with a different guest to discuss a horror film they find particularly beautiful and why. I'm your host, Chandler Bullock, and today's guest is a nonfiction writer and musician. She is the co-founder of the upcoming book Transploitation, which will be a collection of essays by trans and non-binary writers on representation in horror. When she isn't dissecting horror through a queer and trans lens, she's rocking out under the moniker of the Blue Iris. Beautiful welcomes to Tin Baki. Hey, hi, and hello. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> I'm very happy to have you. It's it's Thank wonderful you. to sit and talk with you for once. And uh, yeah, I'm, we, we had some technical uh, issues on my end, but we got there. And we, we made it happen. <laughs> yeah. I thank you for the introduction. That was very well written. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I, I did uh, my research. <laughs> now, for the listeners at home, before we begin our discussion, you may know by now, I like to kick things off with a quote about beauty, either from the filmmakers or from a, f- a philosopher. And uh, as you may also know, I tend to not uh, err on the short side of things. So, yes, we have another doozy today, a bit of an old classic, if you will. But I thought this was quite fitting for the subject matter we're going to be talking about today. And I, I also found it was an interesting quote. So the quote goes as follows. It says, in calling an object beautiful, we thereby express the fact that it is an object of our aesthetic contemplation, which includes two things. Namely, on the one hand, that our view of it makes us objective, i.e. that in the contemplation of it, we are no longer conscious of ourselves as individuals, but as pure willless subject of cognition. And on the other hand, that in the object, we are taking cognizance not of the individual thing, but of an idea. I will reveal who said this a little bit later, but first, Tin, let's talk a little bit about you and your relationship with horror. How did you get into this crazy world and what is it about you about it that keeps you coming? I love that question. I got into horror, I guess as a kid, I, I was pretty into it. I remember liking the very weird things, I guess for a child, like I would collect like the spawn toys and like figures and i'd be like you know mom you have to buy me this thing and they're not very cheap so i didn't get that many of them i'm sure but (laughs) i remember thinking they were the coolest thing in the world and how like just all of that kind of stuff was i would always like uh come up with storylines for my action figures as a kid and was always super into that um but i was i mean truthfully scared shitless i remember watching like uh the ring and like the grudge and stuff the american versions and you know, those were really popular when I was younger and being like, this is fucking horrifying. (laughs) Like I'm so scared. And then, uh, and then I kind of, honestly, I kind of fell out of it as I was getting older. I started playing music a lot more, Um, you know, from when I was like 13, 14, that age, I wasn't super into it. And then I remember I was hanging out with a friend 
And she put on Brain Dead or Dead Alive is also called. And we watched it. And that movie is just a crazy, funny, gore filled mm-hmm. uh, film. And I remember watching that for the first time and thinking like, this is the best thing I've ever seen. <laughs> like this movie <laughs> is literally amazing. And so I, uh, I honestly fell back in love with horror because of that movie and started getting into that genre, like reanimator and uh, Ooh, yeah. well, like society, I guess too, if you want to keep going down that route. But I, I got super into like gore films and zombie flicks and George Romero and all this. And then I started getting really into Italian flicks when I saw Suspiria and Dario Argento became like my favorite director. And honestly, I've basically just been obsessed since then. And that was probably when I was like, I don't know, 18 or 17 when I really dove back into it again. And I'm 26 now. So the last 10 years have been my full dive back into horror and really getting into horror slashers, yalla, whatever genre you want to call any of those. I I just love it all. (laughs) Hey, uh, that I, I feel the passion and I vibe so hard with the spawn toys. I had it too. (laughs) Yeah. I I remember walking through toys R us and I was, I don't know, like 10 or something. (laughs) And then I was like, well, I don't know what that is, but I have to own it. And then it came with a comic book and I was like, what the (laughs) fuck is this comic book? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So very cool. And I especially, I love you mentioning how you would kind of like set up scenarios with your action figures and just kind of, you know, make your own stories, which I think that a lot of us who have, you know, because we work together with Ghoulish Media as well. So we write very similar pieces. Yeah. Uh, so those of us who tend to write about horror, I think also always had that drive that, you know, uh, what are, what are the scenarios? What kind of pieces of this am I picking up? And we take little bits as we kind of go along. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I I guess the action figures kind of start that, doesn't it? Oh, I totally think so. I think it's overlooked. I played with them a lot and I had all these crazy stories and I still have all those crazy stories in my head, but they're just not with action figures anymore. There you go. There you go. (laughs) So let's see, you said that you saw The Ring when you were young. And if you're 26, then, wow, see, I'm 34, and I saw The Ring when it came out. And it really messed me up. I think I was 15. Yeah, so it came out It came out in 2002. So, I mean, it, when it came out, I was like seven years old. Oh but, but I probably watched it a year or so later because it was on DVD already or, or VHS or something. Mm-hmm. It was at my friend's house. I was staying over there. And he had older sisters and we were watching it. They were like, they were the ones watching it. Like, you guys can watch it with us. We're like, oh, we're not afraid. Totally. No big deal. Like, we're cool. Come on. <laughs> and I totally was. <laughs> I was totally afraid. Yeah. They knew what they were doing too, especially if you watched it on VHS at the time. They were like, oh, we probably fuck did. Everyone up. We probably did. Yeah. We probably did watch it on VHS. Knowing, knowing the year, it was, uh-huh. uh, it was definitely a moment for me. And then I also remember watching, Bride of Chucky and stuff when those films yeah. were coming out uh, as well. And those were like really like wild to me. And like they, they, they had my imagination going crazy with the, the toys coming to life and whatnot. Oh yeah. There, there's a connection right there, isn't it? Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you more into then the kind of silly fun side of horror or that part that just tears us apart? I, I mean, I like a lot of it. I like all of it. Um, I mean, my favorite genre is just like yellow films. So like Italian cinema specifically is a huge 
part of what I enjoy. But really, um, the reason that I kind of mentioned before that I got back into horror was really like the gore and the violence and like the over the topness. Mm. But then what kept me in it was when I saw, you know, like Dario Argento films and they were very much like, oh, it's gory, it's scary, it's crazy over the top, it's violent, but it's also beautiful and gorgeous to look at and the lights are incredible and the the shots are amazing and that was me watching those films like this is exactly what i've always wanted to see i didn't care if the you know the the dubbing was bad because all the italian flicks are (laughs) dubbed and i didn't care you know if the story was convoluted or the acting wasn't Mm -hmm. superb i was just like this movie is gorgeous it's you know it's violent it's out there and it's just fun to watch i just like all of them honestly (laughs) i gotta say i'm pretty jealous of you since you got to get into jello at such a nice age i don't think i really saw i saw suspiria probably around 20 didn't appreciate it as much as i should have because i didn't pick it back up for like another six or seven years but it's also because it was like there's something about DVD to me that doesn't do films justice. It's like it's either VHS or Blu-ray or the kind of the sweet spots for me. It's funny that you say that because I collect both VHS and Blu-ray, but I don't really have any DVDs. But there you go. Yeah, no, I totally, I totally know what you mean. Yeah, absolutely. And for, I think it's also because there are a lot of really bargain bin, trashy looking DVDs that were made of things that mm-hmm. didn't do good transfers. And that was the version of Suspiria that I saw. The, oh, that's no so charm. Exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I think Synapse has a 4K version that they did in 2019. Yes. And it's mm-hmm. fully like remastered and everything. They did a full like all the colors are like really vibrant in that edition. I said they said that they partnered with all the original people like cinematographers and everything and made sure that it was actually accurate and not just like a faux, you know, colorization of the film. But, um, it looks amazing. And I watched that version the most. (laughs) It's it's like, I want it for me. Yeah. Yeah. I have the regular Blu-ray from Synapse. So I can only like, I remember the first time I saw it on a good TV with just the Blu-ray blew my mind. 4k is going to just sear my eyeballs out. I think it's gorgeous. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, but now I'm, I love Jello. I got into it. Now I own like a whole bunch of the arrow, uh, collection from Argento stuff and yeah. a few of those movies. And I wish I had had this in my life at those wonderful early twenties years when I could have just, there's so much expression in it and it helps, at least for me, it really helps motivate you to just express yourself as well. Cause as you say, like, who cares if it's convoluted, who cares if there's like qualities yeah, that aren't I mean, great. I just got over it. Like, yeah, right. <laughs> like it's not, it doesn't matter to me. I still think it's beautiful and awesome, which is actually why I like the movie knife and heart so much. Yes. Ah, great segue into our film today. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I consider it a yellow film. It, it, they call it like a horror thriller, mystery, whatever. But I mean, it. I mean, look at the key elements. It's French, sure, but like, it's it's totally. I mean, come on. <laughs> oh yes. Uh, there's a lot of Jallo in there, and so yes, uh, dear listeners, our film that we're going to discuss today is Knife and Heart, or Knife Plus Heart, depending on how like. <laughs> 
I guess phonetically you read that title. Uh, for anybody who hasn't seen the film, I'm going to give the briefest, and I mean the most bare bones synopsis I can possibly give. You will have more details as we go because spoiler alert to talk about the beautiful, you got to talk about the details. But here is our general, general, general gist in case you want to check this movie out based on its uh, premise. Here we go. Paris, 1979. After one of her most prominent actors is brutally murdered during a night of passion, Anna Pareza, director of homoerotic pornography, is struck with the inspiration to create her most ambitious project yet. As she puts together her masterpiece, she must deal with an array of hurdles, including her increasingly obsessive, dark passion for her ex-partner of 10 years and film editor, Luis, as well as the cast of her production studio being targeted by the same enigmatic murderer. Serving as equal parts modern giallo classic, see, I agree, and an exploration of LGBTQ plus love and sex in the late 70s in Paris, Knife plus Heart, or Knife and Heart, exposes the beauty and darkness that lurk within human passion. I try to be as succinct as possible with that, since this is a very uh, layered film, I'd say. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So I approached you. I really wanted to get you on here to talk about beauty and horror. And I think you had the most direct, assertive, I want this movie of anybody who's had it so far. So like, really? what was it that made you go knife and heart? No question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, knife and heart is one of those movies that I, ever since I very first saw it, which I think was kind of around the time it came out, which is 2018, 2019. I can't remember when it actually dropped on uh, media, like for streaming. I think it was on Shutter in 2019. Yeah. Um, but uh, when I very first heard of it, I was like, this looks exactly like what I like. <laughs> like the trailer <laughs> was like colorful and there was, it's queer. And I was like, I'm interested, you know, like I'm super interested. And when I sat down and watched it the first time, I was literally just like, what was that? I'm, I think I even watched it again, like the next day or like within the same week, because I just was so like intrigued by the film and so interested in like what it had to say and like how the, how it looked and everything. And when you asked me to be on this um, podcast, I actually considered uh, Suspiria 1977, which is my favorite film of all time. But I was like, you know what? I feel like a lot of people talk about that film. And even though it's my favorite film, I feel like Knife and Heart needs a little bit more. Like, I want more people to talk about it. So I'm going to be the one to go and talk about it. It's just such a good Hell film. Yeah. yeah. You got to be a pioneer. I really appreciated it. Uh, <laughs> You know, I also loved when in our you know conversations leading up to this recording, you kept have you have you watched it yet? And now I get <laughs> yeah. it. Now that I've seen it, yeah. I was like, what a film! What it's a crazy wild yeah. ride that this. Yeah, was. I saw you gave it four and a half stars on Letterbox. I did, I did. Which and is honestly, not five stars. It is. The only reason I didn't give it five is I, I, I'm very stringent with my first viewings mm. in a film because I got to let them sit. Plus. I'm still kind of blurry on the killer. So, Oh, well we can talk about it. <laughs> oh, we're, yeah. I was the, this is the beauty of doing these things on a podcast is that uh, I get an expert on and I guess, oh, so what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> what, what exactly is this movie about? <laughs> Before we get to the, the, yeah, the reveals, ending, the killers yeah. and stuff. I want to know what is it that speaks beauty to you? And now there are a lot of things, so take your pick, but um, what is the first thing that springs to mind to you about what makes this movie beautiful? 
the use of lighting, mm -hmm. the camera work and general cinematography, and the look into European 1970s, 1980s queer culture. Honestly, those three things are the three things that I think are beautiful, the most, like, the most intriguing mm -hmm. and the most interesting about the film. Oh, when yeah. we're just, just talking visual beauty. If we're talking written beauty, though, I mean, the story itself has so much. It talks about, you know, it talks about some things that could be found toxic in, in queer culture and things like that. But it, it takes a look at them from a very unique perspective from inside of that culture and inside of those spaces um, that you don't see in a lot of other films. And it also takes something like sexuality and sensuality and puts it in the forefront, whether it's for comedy, whether it's for um, for stylistic reasons. I mean, you know, you could talk about all the different uses that it has in this film, but mm -hmm. um, I can't think of another film that is as sexual, that is as violent, and that is as beautiful at the same time as this film that sticks with me the way this one does. I'm right there with you on that. I was very impressed with how kind of not seamlessly everything was put together, but more just how adept everybody was at their jobs behind the scenes for this film. And I think for me, it was definitely that exploration of queer culture that struck me as the most beautiful element just in how it was doing it. You know, there are a lot of, there are a lot of queer films out there and not as many in the mainstream, unfortunately, but this had such a mainstream slash art house horror kind of vibe to it and handled the material without feeling exploitative to me. It felt more honest about everything. And I never once felt that there was any crassness or doing things like, you know how sometimes there, and this is wonderful. There are a lot of queer filmmakers who will put elements in a way to try to make anybody who is hetero or says feel very uncomfortable in their films. Like, yeah. yeah, but this one's just like, this is the lives of these people. These are their emotions. This is their sexuality. This is how shit was in the seventies in France. And here's your most flawed protagonist that you could possibly have. <laughs> Literally. Let's yeah. have a movie. Oh yeah. We'll get on Anna. We'll get on Anna a bit. Yeah, we will. <laughs> I agree. Anna is, Anna is a very, very flawed, problematic character. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And I just loved that this movie didn't hold back, but it also didn't feel like it was going out of its way to knock down walls along the way. It made art and also total very honest depiction of a portion of society that is more or less muted in the mainstream. Oh yeah, so absolutely. That hit me like a ton of bricks. It's just how poignant and beautiful it all was. The cinematography in this movie is so outstanding. And I... I eat it up. I eat it up so much because <laughs> to see a movie that came out in 2019, do some of the shots that they did here without using CGI is oh, yeah. heartwarming. <laughs> mm -hmm. they, they totally killed it. I don't yeah. actually know for sure, but it, it definitely feels like it was filmed on, on film. I I'm, I'm, I'm fairly sure that it probably was, but just based on the way it looks, but I could be mistaken. It definitely has that vibe. 
It does. And, you know, for a movie that is about making movies in that time period as well, there's enough film stock and cameras and stuff on that set that if they worked, I wouldn't be surprised if they had similar technology that they were using to make the movie itself. Yeah. Um, I remember one scene in particular that really struck me. And I'd love to hear some from you as well that kind of, you know, hit you is you have the moment when Anne's watching the film uh, that she's made. So at the end of the film. Yeah. And in she the wakes up from her dream. And yeah, when she's in the theater, when yeah. she wakes up from her dream about everything, uh, her nightmare with everybody coming back as zombies to attack yeah. her in the cinema, which what a great <laughs> nod to demons. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> she stands up and then you have a moment in the trailer that they're showing on the screen that yeah. they do like a crash zoom. And it just looks like she's sucked into the screen even though they don't do that kind of, it looks like a vertigo shot basically, yes, but yeah. they don't do anything on her end. So there is no dolly shot. She's the camera's perfectly She's still. Not, yes. But that, it, that takes some vision that I, I don't know. I'm blown away by that stuff. Uh, you know, I love the manipulation of how this film really shows the power of the eye of the lens, basically oh, yeah. the power of filmmaking. I mean, this film does a ton of little things like that, that you don't expect. There's another scene where Anne is in the bar and a bunch of people walk in, a bunch of these uh, trans women come in, these sex workers, Mm -hmm. and um, they're getting like their introductions. And it's almost like a nod to like exploitation or like a nod to like that 70s documentary style because all of a sudden the camera guy sitting at the table just nonchalantly pulls out his camera and starts filming these these women that are in the bar and and you hear like almost like as a i guess like almost as like a narration over the top of it you hear um them introducing them so it's like oh this character does this and it changes perspective to the camera shot and it's like on film and it's got like the big black borders and everything and it's like showing them individually and they're almost like posing for the camera and like as if they're like they're knowingly standing in front of it as like their introduction it's very very strange but it's also like they just put it in so well that you're almost it doesn't pull you out in a way that I could see it happening to in some other films where you'd be like, that mm-hmm. was weird. Why they do that? <laughs> but like they they just make it work. And there's a lot of little, little scenes like that. And like the one you mentioned where you can tell that they sat there and they were like, I want this to look a certain way and feel a certain way. And that was probably more important than even what was I imagine really what was even being said or what was happening mm-hmm. in the scene. Cause that introduction, like that scene I just mentioned at the bar, I mean, they're introducing those characters that we don't even really get to know. And only like two of the, like the four of them even really get dialogue or even say anything, you know, in the film, but like, it didn't really matter what they were saying or what they were doing. It was just about the fact that they wanted to put those shots in there to me. That's what it felt like at least. Mm-hmm. And that was uh Missia. I think is how you pronounce her name, that it was like mm-hmm. narrating that scene. Oh, poor, poor Missia. Yeah, that was sad what happened to her. Um, that was definitely upsetting. <laughs> I, yeah. It's, and also, it's kind of out of the blue, too. That was one of the few kills in the film that I felt kind of drifted a little bit away from Guy's MO, unless, because it was with Missia, that's when it started to feel like it was a personal attack against uh, Anne but that's kind of like a misleading moment in the film uh, for I mean, me at least. If you watch, I mean, in the end, I, I mean, this is going to be diving into the whole motive of the murderer and everything, which I know you said you were a little bit mis, uh confused on, mm-hmm. but 
I mean, the fact is that Anne is psychic and she sees things like in her sleep or in her dreams. And that's why everything's a negative. And so right. she's seeing all these negative memories and, and like visions. And she doesn't realize that they're actually real until way later in the film. And then you don't find out till the end of the movie that she's actually been having them forever, like for mm. years. So they play um, at the end of the film after uh, they play uh, the newest movie that she just created. They play, she calls it a moldy oldie. And the storyline in the moldy oldie is that these two people are gay lovers. And then their dad walks into this barn and he's like, oh, I'm okay with this. And then they all get naked and they have sex and they run around the barn on fire. And that whole movie is actually from her psychic vision, which was based in reality unknowingly on Guy, the killer's life. But what really happened in real life was that the dad came in and and, uh, and killed one of them and lit the barn yeah. on fire to burn the evidence and Guy got burned up. And so everyone in that movie, all the actors, including uh, Misia, got killed. So he actually only was killing people involved in the movie that was basically um, poking at his real life tragedy. Thank you. So the psychic thing was the thing I didn't pick up on. I, I mean, I did, but I didn't, you know what I mean? Yeah. So every time I showed it, it film a negative of like the barn burning and him mm-hmm. and seeing stuff. And then the visions that she kept having. And she, at first she only had them when she was asleep, but as the movie progressed, yeah. she started seeing them when she was awake because it got more magical and fairy tale esque, like during the scene in the woods with the, yes. the bird man and all that. Yeah. There's some magic realism going on in this movie that I adored. It's such a bold (laughs) thing to do in a film. It works in novels so well, but when the filmmaker Mm -hmm. goes, no, fuck it, this guy's got bird hands and they just say (laughs) disorder. It's like, you do your movie. You have it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, um, but it makes me think though. Um, if you, if you listen to the, the backstory behind it, um, guy was taken into the woods and taken care of by birds is what they say in the end. Mm-hmm. And then he escaped the birds in the city and he snuck into that, f- that porn um, house. And that's when he saw the film and that's when it became triggered and started murdering people. Okay. Whereas this guy in the woods um, has this bird hand and he says it starts in your hand or like the woman says starts in your hands and eventually mm-hmm. affects you. And all of that leads me to believe that these people are turning into birds, which makes me Think, and this is not based in anything outside of this conversation. I'm actually just now having this realization awesome. that the bird that follows Guy around is actually possibly his boyfriend that was murdered. Um, Hitchum, I think. Uh, yeah, Hisham. Hisham. Uh, yeah, Hisham. Um, I. Yeah, he was. I, it leads me to believe that maybe that bird that was following was actually Hisham, who was turned into that bird by this magical bird people in the woods or whatever this sounds crazy because we haven't even dug into like that much of the film but like this fairy tale (laughs) aspect in reality even though it's it is like a major part of the plot is very glazed over i mean it's very much not talked about in the film and and most of the film is set in a lot of realism which is Mm -hmm. what makes that fairy tale aspect so magical and so intriguing within the context of this film I think that's why the psychic part of it didn't latch on to me. And it's just, you know, as a viewer, sometimes you get just kind of stuck in your own rhythm of, 
well, usually a filmmaker wouldn't go as far as is kind of where your brain goes. But yeah. sometimes you just got to give a movie and a filmmaker more credit and say, hey, what I see is what I'm, they're giving me. They're giving it to you. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. so her visions, they start off. I love that they're negative, by the way. It's very fitting to the fact that she's a filmmaker. But, um, you know, the first vision you see is when she's in the car and she's falling asleep and she's like, oh, I have a vision and we have to go and do this. We have to stop and pull over. And she goes out and and gets that guy off the construction site. And then she has another vision when she's sleeping on the couch later. And she's kind of putting these pieces together in her head and kind of becomes the detective that solves the case in the end or whatever. But, you know, so she, she was having those visions of the reality of things the whole time, unknowing that, like I said, it seems unknowing that they're reality, that they were actually happening. And then the fact that she makes her movie that she we find out later that she made a movie based on those visions. And then on top of that, makes a movie over the actual murders of the people in her life and the like the detective scenes and the photo or the I'm sorry, the phone booth scenes. The fact mm-hmm. that she actually makes that a real, uh, real events into her film just shows how much of her reality and how much of her visions probably are what's creating that film. You know, like how much of yeah. the other films were just her visions and her reality turned into film like that we don't see outside of the film. Yeah. And it also leads her to a lot of those problematic uh, things that we were talking about. Uh, She has a detachment from empathy and and true reality because her life is a film and she sees it as such. She is the director of her Magnum uh, Magnus Opus uh, constantly. I love that. uh, Let me make sure I get this name right. Uh, Jan Gonzalez is the director here. I yeah. love that Jan decided to open our introduction with Anne with her showing the lowest. Well, we think the lowest until later in the film, but like yeah, one of the lowest. It seems like it's uh, low. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You think this this person can't get much uh, more depressing and oof, it gets way worse. But and then, yeah, she does. <laughs> what an intro, though, that. You can just vibe with it. You know, oh, shit, is this our protagonist? And she's on the phone just pleading to her ex-girlfriend, please, for the love of God, take me back. I can't stop thinking of you. And she's like, terrible. She's like, I'll quit drinking unless you want to drink together. (laughs) She's like, I'll quit drinking or we can get drunk. And I'm like, okay, like that's very like, yeah, like, or, you know, we could. And it's like, okay, what are you saying? You know, like she clearly has problems. And, you know, we never really see why they initially broke up, but it's got to be her lack of empathy. It's got to be her drinking problems. It's got to be the way she treats people. I mean, even one of the characters um, who they, I don't know if they ever actually say his name. Golden mouth is what they call him the whole time. I think they just call him mouth. Yeah. Golden mouth or mouth. Um, He, um, he even says at one point like, Oh, she doesn't care. Like she doesn't Mm -hmm. she didn't even care about him. She never cared about him. Like, and that's just giving us a look into back characters that aren't even around anymore or that have already died to show us that like, Anne's lack of empathy has already affected the relationships around her. Yeah. And it's not as if she has no real connection or love for people because love, I think is the driving factor of Anne through and through. Oh Uh, yeah. I love the first half of the film when the murders are happening. I love it. Uh, now understanding the psychic bit of it more, it, it really plays a lot better for me how she's just, hold on. And she starts making this movie and then she starts putting together how it's all going to go. And they're like, are you not upset that like your lead actor who is one of your best friends 
is no longer alive. And yeah, and it seems that that's the case for a while until finally they finish the movie. And then they say like to the movie and then she says, no. And then she gives the toast to the two actors that died. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, it's just very like her personality is very, very interesting. She's, I mean, from the beginning, she's an alcoholic. She's begging to return with her partner, Louise. She's voyeuristic. She's looking at things through holes in the walls, which it's very fitting for the type of movies that she was making. You know, she's peeking on her, her ex through the wall. She's stalking her ex, following her to clubs at mm-hmm. night without her knowing and lying to get inside. She's writing these fucked up notes on film. And I mean, it honestly, it almost seems like it's her as the killer in a lot of the scenes, mm-hmm. because even though they seem to be happening simultaneously, they don't actually tell us that, you know, and, and then she shows up in a lot of convenient times you know, writing you killed me on the film that happens to be the guy who died that same night. I yep. mean, that's that's a combination of we find out, you know, her psychic kind of unknowingly like connecting that to like her breaking up with uh, Louise. And so I don't know. It, there's a lot of parts where they make her seem guilty, actually, now that I'm kind of talking that over. But and yet it, I didn't feel that way when I saw it. Like I could see how like, oh, I can see how somebody might suspect her. And I was oh, so happy yeah. she wasn't a suspect throughout the entire no, film. I agree. Well, there was no suspects because the police didn't care. Fair. <laughs> but if the audience cared. Exactly. I, I like that they didn't make it from an audience perspective. Like you shouldn't be trusting this. And like, I distrust Anne for way other reasons. Than- <laughs> yeah. Because of the, <laughs> The scene where she mm-hmm. sexually abuses and, uh, you know, board, I mean, bordering rape in the yeah. alleyway with uh, with Louise was really intense and, of course, ended their relationship forever because um, yep. Louise sends that letter to Anne that's like, I can never be with you again and you, you've torn me up inside. It, it reminds me of uh, when, when Anne goes to the one of the gay clubs that she goes to and there's a performance going on and it's a bear and a woman kind of, and the bear is like scratching up the woman. There's blood pouring out everywhere. And the woman says, the more you kill me, the more I love you. And it's just a a kind of like a touch a little bit on like abusive relationships and also Mm -hmm. like the pain that like, that you can feel from like the loss of like a love or the loss of a relationship, especially when in the end, as we know, Luis jumps in front of a knife, um, saving Anne's life, despite Anne having abused her and like treated her wrongly for so many years. She also says in that letter as well that so that the whole film, uh, this is for listeners, but for, throughout the whole film, uh, every time they have an altercation, when Anne just basically throws her emotions at Luis and you know dumps it on her, I I really need you back. She keeps saying, "I have loved you for ten years." I cannot let go of this for 10 years. I have loved you. And Louise just keeps saying, stop approaching me. She's trying to protect herself from this abusive force that's coming at her. Yeah. Cause she hasn't had time to even process the reason they broke up in the first place. No, If she'd had the time, they may have even gotten back together. No, I, I think it's totally possible. They could have gotten back together. Yeah. But in the letter, she says, I loved you for 10 years as well. And I still do. And I loved that point. Um, I've been in my fair share of toxic relationships and you, it doesn't just because there is this push away from somebody who's not good for you 
doesn't mean you don't have love for them. It's just you have a protective drive and you know what sort of toxin is in your space. You've just become a bit yes. more aware of it. And yeah. so Luis is conflicted constantly because she loves Anne. Otherwise, she wouldn't still be working at that stupid no, studio that doesn't pay there. her anything. Yeah, she wouldn't be there. She definitely loves Anne, uh, despite the the difficult that things that they've gone through and like the way that she'd been treated. Mm-hmm. It's uh, their relationship to me is, I mean, the core part of this film outside of right. the murders and, you know, um, and like the general plot of the horror aspect of the film, when it comes down to it, this film is hugely about their relationship and the way that they interact with each other. I mean, front to back, even when the credits kind of start, there's a, there's a whole set of shots there where all the characters are together in a room and, you know, uh, Anne sees Louise again and they kiss and stuff like as some of the credits are rolling by like after the movie's over. And it's just very much, pushing further like hey this is really about these queer relationships and really about Mm -hmm. the way that it is i also while we're talking about problematic characters and problematic you know tropes and things in general i also want to talk about guy the the killer because it's really sad honestly what happens to him he essentially was in a queer relationship with another man who um who ended up getting killed and then he was himself was burned alive and barely survived, um, supposedly saved by uh, birds in the woods and then becomes irate when these memories of this past life start to come back to his mind because of this Anne's vision movie. And so then he, you know, then he becomes obsessed with killing all the people involved in this movie who told this horrifying story and, and didn't tell the real story of what really happened to him. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, uh, and so he kills every single actor who was like, that's uh, the only people who die outside of Louise were people who were in the film. Like he only kills right. the people in the film. And so like he's killing all those people. And then in the end, he his community shines a light on him the queer communities in that theater and they say like oh do you like to you like to kill like fags huh like you get off on killing you know gay people basically and they they beat him up and they actually kill him in the theater on state like right in front of the projection screen you know and um it's really sad because it's almost like kind of a look at a lot of different things from trauma, internalized homophobia. He himself was almost like hating on those things because that's, you know, he was taught that he was, he himself was burned uh, alive for it, you know? And, um, and it talk it kind of shines a look at like how like um, people in our own community can kind of turn around on themselves. And it's just really sad because in the end he gets killed by, by these other, these other queer folks who have no idea what really happened to him and what his story really is. And then Anne kind of does this talking piece after that, where she's speaking, Oh, and this is what really happened to him. And here's how it really went down. And here's the true story about Mm -hmm. how he was killed. And I mean, and I think that his boyfriend was castrated actually as well in that scene in the barn before it was Mm -hmm. burned down. So, I mean, it's very violent and very traumatic what happened to him. And so like, he's this problematic character for obvious reasons of being a killer and like murdering all these people. (laughs) But in the end, it's really just like a sad story because he, 
he was kind of put through all of this, uh, you know, unknowingly and unnecessarily. I mean, he can't even speak in the end. He can only, I guess his language is of the birds, the bird people in the woods. I don't know, but he can only make those sounds, which up until the end were horrifying and scary because you think he's almost getting off on these murders and, and he's screaming and he's shaking and it's really terrifying. But then in the end, when he's shaking and screaming, it's, it's more of a, it's more of sad, I think, you know, to see what ended up happening to him. And because the reality is he was just triggered by this, this tra- traumatic experience being put on film that he doesn't even remember, you know, due mm-hmm. to the fairy tale as- aspect of him being resurrected or whatever. So it's very, very sad, uh, honestly, very interesting character and plot line in general. So I understand why it could be hard to follow, especially on a first watch because there's so much layers to the story in this film. Yeah, I mean, his tragedy hit me pretty profoundly. It it, it was more Anne's psychic nature that kind of got me, because from the moment I saw Guy from that first murder, the fact that he had a lot... It it was clear that there was passion, but it wasn't a crime of passion. You know, this was somebody who had been... who was triggered in the moment... And who felt that they were enacting, you know, some way to, I guess, seek out catharsis in this situation mm-hmm. or to at least destroy the source of their pain. And throughout the film, you do have, especially in a first viewing, you do have to question, like, is it indeed homophobic or is it somebody who's been abused or, or what's going on? So when they finally tell you, I, I love that it's the people who are explicitly involved because it is a kind of a take on the bird of the crystal plumage how the killer in that one is triggered by a painting. Uh, I quite like this more because film tells a story in a more explicit and, you know, structured way. So Mm -hmm. it makes more sense that somebody could have a genuine freak out and just pick up a mask, get a knife and make a plan because of this material. If it feels like somebody's telling and mocking your story, and you don't even have the ability to tell everybody the other part of the story, your own perspective. Yeah. And we never hear it. You do. Like, you brought up a great point in that he cannot speak. So yet again, it's Anne whose perspective we have to sit the with. End. The shitty, yeah. horrible, abusive person yeah. who tries to romanticize shit. <laughs> yeah, I try to imagine that she she does romanticize it, actually, in the end. And I actually say that. But she she kind of gives us the real true story at the end as like a narration and i don't know if that's like a dial like a exposition kind of dump sort of mm-hmm. or if it's just us finally getting the real story of this tragic character and the loss of what happened but it's like you know because we see her film version and then we see the negative flashbacks but then we finally get the here's what really happened they fell in love they were happy but you know this homophobic person ruined it for them and then I fucking made a film about it, <laughs> like, and didn't realize it was real. You know, very strange, very, very interesting film. It's just beautiful. And then, I mean, I know we've been talking a lot about the plot and the characters, but I mean, it's just so beautiful to look at the scenes in the clubs, the the shots while they're filming, the the even like the fake film within the film, the meta, the meta ness of that. Um, I mean, it's it's just so intriguing and interesting and beautiful and funny. And I mean, I just think this film has everything that I want in a film. Um, I know people say that it's slow. 
because you mm. get like three murders and then you have no murders for a very long time. Very and long, she's yeah. goes, there's like a, the assault scene and she goes to the woods and, and she stays in this cabin and then she talks to this bird, this guy with the bird hand and she gets the feather from the police officers and all this, all this stuff happens. And then she comes up and formulates this plan where she is going to try and film another movie to lure guy onto the set, which goes horribly and ends up killing both um, yep. Luis and um, I'm trying to remember the other guy's name who was there. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if I know which, uh, what that, what that character's name was. Uh, well, um, still one of the actors that was also in the, uh, filmic version. He played the yeah. father in the filmic version. Yeah, he does. He plays the, the, plays his father. So he, yeah, um, he gets murdered and so does Luis. And so it's very, very like a bad plan that she had, which is very obvious to me that she was attempting to lure him based mm-hmm. on the fact that she's in this hotel and she has this vision and all this stuff. And she gets like this, these newspaper columns and she's like, let's make this happen. So then all those murders happen and then it's sad again. And then you're in the theater and then there's like another finale, but there is that very long section in the middle and I think a lot of people find that section boring, but I didn't find it boring. I found it to be intriguing. I found it to be interesting and beautiful in its own right. I mean, the set design, I mean, what was that giant pyramid building in the woods with the Birdman? And then there's like a graveyard and you meet Guy's mom who's convinced. Yeah. And she's like in a farmhouse. And I think that one girl might be a lesbian as well, who she shares her alcohol with. Mm. who's kind of like wants to hang out with her and walk with her in the woods. He's like, Oh, I got you all these and like these little flowers and stuff. And, you know, and, and so there's a lot of like that mid scene that, or the middle of the film that, that has a lot of that um, detective work that like yellow kind of style. And it's also magical. I I don't know. I thought that Mm -hmm. that part was important. And I think that after the scene where she um, kind of, is abusive uh, to um, Luis and really opens up her psychic abilities and she meets all these people and she does all these fantastical things that just seem almost unbelievable, like just to walk into a woods and find the graveyard and find Guy's mom without trying almost at all. You know, it's very, it's very fairy tale-esque. It's very interesting. Yeah. And from my perspective, so to talk about beauty, that whole, middle portion i can see why somebody might find it slow especially if you're really looking for that argento bloodhound goblin scored kind of film oh yeah this case (laughs) i thought that the juxtaposition or no no the contrast the contrast between this urban landscape that they had shown throughout the majority of the film a lot of beautiful imagery neon lights yeah really amazing shots and clubs there's like three gay clubs yeah. <laughs> and Different ones. They are all just fucking, I want to go to them. They're awesome. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all of them look so much fun in their own right. And then you get the beauty of the French landscape because you go outside of Paris yeah. and you just go on this little nature tour real quick mm-hmm. to show you. Remember, France yeah. is pretty damn cool, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. They're like, don't forget about all this. Yeah. It's very pretty. There's a scene where there's a scene where Anne is in the car uh, with, I, I wish I remembered everyone's name. There's a lot of background characters that don't really get a lot of talking points, but I was just, 
No, uh, not okay. her roommate. It's a, it's the girl who I said I was possibly also a lesbian, who, the okay. daughter of the guy yeah. who owns the place out in the woods. Anyway, she and uh, they're driving back in a truck and they're driving through the woods. And in the background, the woods are literally bright red. All the trees are red, yeah. like around them as they're driving. And it's like so subtle because you're really focused on their conversation. And she's talking about guy and she's giving all this exposition. And, uh, and, and you know, they, t- they share a drink of alcohol during that scene, you know, from a bottle. And, um, but in the background, like for some reason, the woods are glowing red, like just for no reason. And it's just like the little things like that, that, that really make this movie. I don't know. It's just so beautiful. Like everything. It's like they thought and every scene, they're like, hmm, how can we make this more visually appealing? Like almost in almost every scene. There's another scene we haven't talked about at all. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe a little bit when Misha dies in the woods. Yeah. The camera's like spinning. It shows her and then it spins around and then it shows her again and it spins around and then she's getting murdered and the knife is out and and like the woods are really beautiful there. And at the same time, Anna's kissing Louise and everyone else is running away. And then it starts pouring rain and the rain is just pouring all over them and it looks super just wild. It just looks completely wild and, and different than any other scene that I can think of. I mean, that, that's that whole that whole part was completely wild. I love that it just starts storming out of nowhere, like heavily, like the winds come in and everything. It was like a prophecy. It was very magical. I mean, that scene was sad because I wanted the trans people to live, but I, I, uh, I understand why it happened based on, you know, what, what plays out and that, that character was in the movie. Um, so it had to happen. Yeah, yeah, that was super tragic to me as well with Missia. Like, oh no, and she's so just like an angel too. She's yeah, so she's sweet. Just great. Yeah, the fact that she got her buddies who were laughing because when they were in the bar, yeah, and offers them like, "I'll pay you two hundred francs a movie." They're like, "That's <laughs> not even a blowjob for me as a hooker." In so. the day rights, yeah, they were like <laughs> in, in the, the day, day rights. Yeah. <laughs> day rights, yeah, it's so funny. And then the the next shot you have is what looks to be one of Anne's visions it for is, a totally. film, and but it suddenly is. it is the movie. So that it means is. That it's Missy a finale. <laughs> yeah, but Missy then probably said, "I'll do it," and then just like convinced all her girlfriends to be a part of totally. the movie anyway. She did, yeah. She convinced them all to join. I, I mean, it doesn't explicitly say that, but you have no. to expect that's what happened. Yeah, you know, especially with how she approaches Anne uh, right before this as well. You know, she just seems to like want everybody to get along. Yeah, no, it's great. And then, um, and they say in that scene, you know, because that's the end of the movie, they say she saw so many gay films, she thought she was a fag or whatever, like mm-hmm. about the, the Anne's fake character in the movie, which was just so wild and just crazy. <laughs> what a line. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> it's completely crazy. Uh, it's such a good line. Um, the movie within the movie, the, the porn, I want to mm-hmm. watch it so bad. I mean, yes. the, Another shot that I love is uh, from the film within the film is when they're on the phone and one of them's in a phone booth with the detective and the detective mm-hmm. is, and which is sort of funny because the, the, the character arc uh, Archibald, I think is who that character's name is, which is like her best friend who she like lives yeah, with or whatever. Cause he's playing her, right? Yeah. He's like playing her and she's playing the killer, but uh, he's like playing her and he's like in the phone booth 
and uh, is like masturbating on the phone with this police officer who's having someone go down on them at the same time. And then at the same time, they do this this side by side shot where you see each one of them. And the audio, I know we haven't talked about this at all. The audio and the scoring in this film was amazing. The score is incredible. But in that scene, they have like the speech on the right side when they're talking, the speech on the left side when the other character's talking. And they both are masturbating and they both like have these insane, I, this is a probably crazy for your podcast, but these cum shots <laughs> that shoot all over their face. And it's like just gigantic and ridiculous, like completely unrealistic. And that's like in her fake film. Yeah. And it's just, uh, or well, the film within the film. And it's just like amazing. That scene was incredible. And when I first watched it, I said, did that just happen? I was yeah, like, right. what the hell? And then, you know, we, I mean, and the truth is like, it did sort of feel like Anne was doing everything for Louise because then you see Louise editing the yeah. film and Louise is smiling and she's like, Anne, you're crazy. And she's loving it. She's so happy that Anne is making like a good film for once. I think that's also where that weird stalkery side of Anne is though, because you know, she's carving messages into the film reel because she knows Anne has to edit it. She puts herself in the movie so that Anne has to see her smiling and being happy with the cast. Yeah, exactly. She does all of Luis's favorite types of just bonkers over the top stuff that she used to do before she turned it into some third rate uh, dollar bin kind of porn. <laughs> yes, she's bringing all that kind of wild stuff out there. Oh. Like the naked people running around in circle around a burning barn. Yeah. Which is apparently. <laughs> Little May dance. <laughs> I was talking to um, my partner, Ren, about this film, and, and they said that uh, that a lot of the films within the films remind them of Renaissance paintings, and I thought that was mm-hmm. really interesting. Yeah. I see that for sure. I one shot in particular that got me and this is the type of stuff that for me just starts to unload a lot of layers was yeah. when she uh, when Anne starts to voyeuristically look at Louise and then we see it from the inside of Louise's <laughs> yeah so mm-hmm. you have this little peephole it's like a mouth it's in an eye there's oh, a painting yeah. of an eye in the wall and she's the pupil staring through this little eye within the eye and the camera just Ridiculous. slowly like dollies towards the eye. And it's such an amazing shot, but it says a lot too. You know, it talks, it's really showing you what we're doing. We're voriously watching a movie. You have the eye yeah. of the lens. You have Anne's eye. You also have the passion and obsession and all the themes of the film are just one shot. The whole film's just in that one particular little screenshot. That's and pretty fair. This whole movie does that constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, so real quick, the reason why I chose the quote that I chose, uh, for people who are wondering, that is uh, a very old quote. It may have sounded really old as uh, from Arthur Schopenhauer, <laughs> which is the kind of father of pessimism, uh, the way we all know and love it these days. Uh, but you know, while he's kicking around in the 17 and 1800s and just being curmudgeon and complaining about things very eloquently, um, he talked a lot about notions like the sublime since it comes from fear and are more negative uh, spaces and compared it to beauty. Now for Schopenhauer, beauty is nothing more than the negation of the suffering. That is the standard part of human existence that we suffer and we do everything. Every drive that we have is just a means to make the suffering muted for just a moment is how he feels or felt this particular quote I felt was so mm, it, it matched this movie so well because of people like Anne, how 
it's all about the, she describes beauty in her own way. And it, she sees this kind of ravenous, dark, twisted passion in the beautiful. So you know that anything she finds beautiful, she's willing to destroy because you yes. should be willing to fuck shit up if you find yeah. something beautiful and you love it. And just like Schopenhauer is saying in that quote, she wasn't seeing the object anymore. She wasn't seeing Louise. She was seeing the idea of Louise. And she also wasn't even feeling herself as Anne anymore. She's feeling just, I am the vessel of this emotion. And so she has very pure aesthetic experiences. And I think that aesthetics just drives her entire existence. Mm-hmm. And that's also where her problems come into play as well. That she doesn't respond by treating people as the people that they are or treating situations as the situations that they are. It's all the aesthetic feeling that she is getting is what she has to express and what Mm -hmm. she has to consume and consume. She does. (laughs) Absolutely. She does. Yeah. Anne is a very intriguing character for so many reasons. So many reasons. Oh, so many, but I also feel that this permeates throughout the whole film too. Oh, it's not just Anne. The excess in this film which, as I said, though, without being excessive, I am super impressed with how this film shows excess, you know, drug use, sex, abuse, abuse of power, love, obsession, and egoism when it comes to things like filmmaking or just mm-hmm. the, the business talk that goes through. I love the casual business talk throughout this movie. <laughs> Yeah. You think it would clash, but it actually just ties into the way people treat each other throughout the whole film. It's part of it. Absolutely. Yeah. They talk about money a ton, a ton of time. <laughs> and um, I mean, like every time a character is talking about the film, like, oh, well, I'm not getting paid enough around this money, this and money that like, I think almost every character makes a comment about money through the film. Yeah. Yeah. At some point. I get it. It's a driving force for a lot of our motivations and especially in the seventies in a industry such as any sort of filmmaking, but you know, pornography especially was, was and is, and always has been about money. If you can make it money, then you're using people's excess to make your profitable gain. I can't think of a single character that doesn't embody this level of passion and darkness though. And I'm just floored by how you can do that and everybody still feel like such an individual (laughs) to each other yeah yeah no i I actually really like that um that thought i hadn't considered it that way before but like the way that all the characters have that kind of reoccurring theme of like i guess aesthetic emotions in a way it's just very much like dark but like i don't know i like the way you said it (laughs) Well, thank you. I, <laughs> yeah. I do, I do appreciate when people like the way I say things. <laughs> <laughs> of, well, let's talk a little bit more about the music then since we didn't, or the sounds in general. You, you touched upon it totally. already, but I mean, this film, it really, like, you know, it is an aesthetic film. It chooses very careful aesthetics throughout it. And I was very taken by moments when, sound was kind of taken away. I think there was this one moment where somebody says a line and then they say it again and it gets quieter and they say it again and it gets quieter. And it just kind of, I think it was like, as the camera's zooming out, you just like, boom, yeah. boom. you don't even get to complete the conversation either. 
Yeah, there's a couple parts where the conversation doesn't get finished. Because, I I mean, it kind of feels like they're saying, yeah, that's not the point of this scene. <laughs> they're like, <laughs> exactly. ah, we don't, it doesn't matter what they're saying. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, um, M83 did, uh, did the score, I believe, for this film. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it just did a great job. I mean, and, and the sound design, like you were mentioning, too, I, I think from the beginning that you get this sort of like, like the first murder, which is kind of like the almost a cold opening that we get Mm -hmm. in the club, the music starts playing right as, you know, as, as it's building tension during that scene, it's very sexual. It's very sensual. And then of course the dildo turns into a dildo knife and it, and and it gets very like dark fast and you hear the screaming of the, of, of guy and everything, but the score is just playing through the background of that scene is just awesome. I mean, it's really just incredible. And there's a lot of scenes in this film where there's silence. I mean, there, there's a wow. ton of scenes cause we follow, um, Anne through most of the film. Um, and a lot of the times Anne isn't even talking. She's just like kind of there watching things and experiencing things. And I, I think that the sound design is such a huge part of this film, and it and it really is beautiful. I mean, MA3 did seriously a fantastic job on the on the score for this film. It's just all around good. I don't even know what else to say about it. <laughs> I just enjoy it. I want to make music like that. I want to listen to it. They should put uh, they should put up like a vinyl or something of the, of the score because I don't think they do, but it's uh, mm, it's awesome. I'm not sure either. Yeah, this is one of those scores, but it needs to be. It needs to be. It's it's fairly new, so maybe it'll achieve its cult status soon because it's great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, M83 is is fairly known in, in France, and I think right. they, they actually won a Grammy or they were nominated for a Grammy or something. So they, they're fairly known there, but, like, that's not, the, that's not a typical audience, you know? Like, mm-hmm. that's not, like... You know, they're not like radio played and, and it's very cool. I don't know. I just think that the score was really good. <laughs> I feel like I'm repeating myself, but I can't say enough how good it was. <laughs> hey, that's what this whole podcast is for is to gush and praise and, and say what we got to say, even if we have to say it like 10 times. <laughs> I, you know, I repeat myself a lot, too, because the movies we get to talk about around here are earth shattering most of the time yeah. and just how mm-hmm. amazing they are. And this one's no different. This one, it's a quieter film. I'll give it that. Um, mm-hmm. It's a more contemplative, quiet kind of film, despite all of the absolutely vicious murders that take place in this they movie. Are very vicious. Yeah. The emotions are high, but the movie presents it in a very quiet way, which I think yeah. is that French flair. If ever there was a French Jello film, this is it. Yeah, mm-hmm. I want to talk about the murders. Actually, I really right. I find them very interesting. The first one we kind of talked about a little bit, but it's the one in the club. So it's kind of like a random hookup, anonymous sex thing. Because guy mm-hmm. just gives a look. He just gives that look, and then he goes upstairs. And then the gentleman from the club is like, "I need to follow him." Um, Carl is, is his name. He's like, "I need to follow yeah, him. Um, I need to follow him upstairs." So he just does. He stops dancing. He follows him upstairs. 
and he starts to kiss him and then he gets kind of violent, but it's like in a sexual way, pushes him on the wall and he starts kissing on his neck and it's getting very sensual. And we don't know at this time really what's happening because it's still the beginning of the film, you know, <laughs> and they end up in the bed and he ties into the bed and he's naked and Carl's loving it. And he's, you know, they're, they're obviously have done sexual things already up to this point. We don't know what, cause it doesn't necessarily show every part. Um, but then, then he pulls out that dildo and it turns the knife and he stabs him in his ass, basically like in his yep. rectum and just repeatedly, basically, um, uh, you know, basically raping him with this knife essentially really, uh, which is super dark. And, you know, you see Carl, the blood come from his mouth and from underneath him and fill the, fill the bed. And it's very intense, especially the way that, that um, Jonathan Gannett as Guy plays um, the character when he's, he's screaming and shaking. I know I've mentioned that before. It's very, very intense. Um, and then again, later on, when we get, um, gosh, what is that other character's name who dies? Um, Chetty. Chetty? Okay, cool. Yeah, Chetty. So, yeah, so he, he like ends up, he goes and buys heroin when he finally gets paid by Anne and he is, he kind of is in this uh, car in the parking lot in the dark and he's just totally kind of like, uh, he doesn't OD or anything, but he's just kind of laying there on drugs and here comes guy and it turns into the sexual thing. And I, it doesn't seem really like he's very responsive. So it very much again, feels almost like, I mean, I know I've said this a lot, but it almost feels like another like rape scene. He's, yep. he's puts the dildo in his mouth and he's, he's doing it. And although the, the, there is no fighting going on at that time, it, then it becomes very violent and shaking. And then of course that knife goes through the back of his throat and in that scene, it's cutting back and forth. So it doesn't just show that. It's also showing Anne at the club upset about Louise. And so you get that double emotion again where you're seeing all these multiple heartbreaking moments at the same time. Whether that's someone on heroin getting murdered or whether that's Anne's loss of um, Louise because Louise is dancing with another person. Uh-huh. And so they're jealous, you know, and they're upset. Then there's a a little while later that you get that wood scene, which we already did talk about um, with Misha. Yeah. That scene was very sad and very intriguing. And then the next death scene that we see is on set and you don't even see it because the lights are flashing. You don't see really that one at all. You just see the aftermath of like his throat cut open. Then you get to see Louise get stabbed and neither one of those deaths are really shown. And so when you get to the finale, when no one dies except for Guy, I could see that they kind of, in a way, as far as the deaths go, they they really sh- they really made the violence early on in the film, mm-hmm. and then by the end of the film, it's more of a drama sort of sad sadness to it. And I thought that was that was really interesting because you get that sort of beautiful horrifying murder scenes that I just mentioned earlier that I loved so much, but then you also get this very like intense sadness and like slow, like horror where, you know, they didn't like, we didn't really know um, the first two characters who died like at all really. And so their deaths are very violent and very intense. And then, then when we get um, Misha's death, it's at the same time as a kiss because once again, that's an emotional one for us. It's very like heart heavy. We actually met that character a little bit. We know a little bit more about them. And then the later death with 
Luis is is the most emotional one, and they don't show it almost at all. I mean, like they show her with a knife in her after it's already like there is no mm-hmm. he's gone. You know, guy runs away, and I thought that was so interesting. And then you know, and then of course there's a lot of emotion behind the like these characters in the theater think that this person guy that they're killing and beating up is this uh, person who gets off on killing gay people and killing queers in, in this community. And so they're having like the revenge almost on him. Yeah. But as an audience, we kind of know at this point, if we followed it close enough that that's not really the, the real story behind him. And then of yeah. course it tells us right after that, that's not the real story, but it's uh, just the murders in general are very, very interesting, especially the first two and the last one. They're very, very emotional and they're very heavy and, and they're very um, yellow style. And I, I really, they stuck with me. They'll, they'll stick with me. I think forever. They're very impactful. And not just for how violent they are either. I mean, that is a huge contributing factor to it, but it's the fact that it's, it's sexual. So Mm -hmm. by making sex so violent in those scenes, that makes it incredibly uncomfortable and it can make quite an impression on the viewer, depending on how sensitive you are to that type of material. I also think that the, story does a phenomenal job humanizing these murders more than most Jalo films probably would because of you need to have the extremity of the first two murders in that these are pretty much blank slate characters that we have we know a little bit a bit more about charity but more just how he is as an yeah, asshole but, actor you know like yeah we don't that's really, about it yeah <laughs> whereas with as you say with Luis, they don't put a lot of focus on it because we have gone through this entire journey of watching her soul ripped out time and time again and her struggling with Anne and you just love her by this point. So you don't need to linger on it. We're devastated. Exactly. It's like she's exactly. taken. It's horrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, granted, I will say that that actor that they use for the fake movie moment is the most slashery death in the film because he just pops up about halfway through the movie as a cop. And then he's Jose. just Jose. Is that his name? Yeah. Okay. I figured there. it out after. We didn't say it earlier, but Jose is his name. Or Luis Jose. The the actor's name is no uh is uh Noe Hernandez. Okay, there we go. Yeah. Jose. So with Jose, they don't do much with him other than show him in these fa- like in these movie within a movie scenes. So Jose for him is not seen. At he's kind of disposable and yeah. it's a bit of a shame. Let me comment on that really quick. I yeah. I also want to say that that almost all the main characters in this film are white, um, yeah. and that like only a few of the characters aren't characters like Jose and an unnamed character like Luis's new girlfriend. Uh, Moon, you know, Moon. Thank you. That's yeah. what their name was. You're right. Um, they they actually um, they're very very little characters in that film. That underrepresentation is uh, a little bit disappointing, especially within the queer space. I just wanted to put that out there, that that is something I noticed and that I wish there was a little more of that. And I know it's 1979 France, Paris, but like you're lying if you're going to claim that that wasn't happening there. You know what I mean? So yeah, exactly. I just want to kind of, I just kind of want to put that out there into the world, like recognize that, you know, that representation wasn't there and it should have been a little more there while we're on the subject. Oh no, I think it's absolutely apt of you to say so. I, I, I noticed it myself. I felt that for a film that's taking such great lengths to show a marginalized pocket of society so well, 
that it still took that white centric perspective it on it. Yeah, and absolutely. You have tokenism very clearly in this film to yeah. just be like, hey, we featured all demographics. So they kind of get, they feel like they got their get out of jail free card. They're a very inclusive film. Now we can move on. And yeah, it would have been nice to have a little bit more diversity in that cast, especially knowing that if they went to such lengths to show how queer people at the time had to take so many precautions just to be themselves in the world. I really, really love how queer this film is. I mean, I don't think Anne is shown outside of outside of someone's queer space almost at all, especially for the first hmm. half of the film. She's shown in like three, two or three clubs. She's shown in the where they film their gay porn. She's shown at her friend uh, Archibald's like house. You know, like she's never shown outside of like these. She's at the bars all the time. She's you know passing yeah. out, sleeping there. Like she's always in those spaces. And I found that really intriguing um, as well. It's a very interesting look at that kind of space in 1979. And also keeping in mind at these gay clubs, there was open sex having, there was anonymous sex. Mm -hmm. This is 1979. You look at the timeline, you look at things like HIV and the AIDS epidemic that happened, especially, and as we know, in the, in the queer community, Um, this is, almost predating really the full knowledge of that. And I think that's why it was, um, it was such a good time period for this movie to take place because you were able to show kind of what it was like before that. Yes. Uh, they did a great job showing how light, because nowadays we have as much information as we want to find <laughs> at our fingertips. Yeah. So mm-hmm. this is also why I think, you know, a, a lot of, people including myself can be a little bit more critical to ignorance because we do feel like hey look when when i was growing up and people before me as well they didn't have the ability to get certain bits of information and we had the desire to and now Mm -hmm. that we have the ability to do so people just seem to lack the desire to find it and then i feel like you don't have an excuse especially if you're like over the age of 30 and you're not asking the right questions then you lack the desire to learn more about people around you and to learn not only your own history, but history of others that have shaped your reality. And you didn't even know it because history didn't give them a fair shake. Yeah, no, that's pretty accurate. I, I like that. Take. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you're right. Especially with the internet and stuff now too. It's very, very strange. Yeah. I think that's why a lot of properties are also throwing out that nostalgia these days and, and not throwing out, sorry, throwing it, out into the world i mean right right you know not just to i mean yes you can see it in your more cynical netflix and marvel styles of hey remember when but there is a point to that to also remind you of how the world was in a time Mm -hmm. that certain demographics uh, especially younger demographics aren't going to even have a concept of yeah Uh, and then for people our age and older it's also a great reminder of yeah remember when and this is one of those movies that really (laughs) takes great lengths to show for one how far things have developed but also how Mm -hmm. little things have developed yeah that's true too that's true too yeah like like the the look on the police um in this film the police they they interview Anne and they ask her like three questions and they just don't give a fuck. They don't care at all. They're not trying. And even the one police officer who I think might be gay, it's not said, it's not directly said, mm-hmm. but he's the one who gives Anne the feather and like the clue and like 
you know, it's like, Hey, all the, I'm going to be nice to you. And he said, this is, this case isn't considered a priority here. That's why no one's caring and why no one's like trying because it's a bunch of gay sex workers and they just don't care basically, you know, like that was a really intriguing look. And like, that was 1979. And like, I, you know, we all know that that's exactly how it still is. They, they don't yeah. care. And they're, they're not going to look into it. They're not going to take it as seriously because unfortunately that's the way that the world is right now. And it should be changed. Hopefully it will change soon, but that's, that's real. It's really real. Yeah. And, and, and they put that commentary in there in such a good way, such a really really well written way i really i could keep going i'm gonna keep i'm just gonna keep talking about this film but i really like um (laughs) so i want to comment on something that i wanted to bring up that we haven't talked about yet which was um things like queer tropes like barrier gaze Mm -hmm. and other things like that where you see these queer characters and they're all surrounded in trauma and tragedy and let me say this this is a horror film it's a slasher, it's a yellow, it's a thriller, whatever. These people died. They're all queer. Every person who died is queer. Everyone involved is is getting these horrible deaths. And that is sad. On the flip side, every character in this film is queer. And yep. and, and like every single one. Um, minus possibly the one police officer. I, I don't think any other character we meet is straight through the entire film. And I think that that is a huge, well, maybe not straight, but queer because there's, there's trans people as mm-hmm. well. So I don't know necessarily how all of them identify. It's not explored the fictional world, but, but, but the point is like, you're in this queer universe, you're in this queer world the whole time. And I think that's what makes this movie feel like, Oh, it's okay for me then, you know, like I don't look at it and say, of course they killed all the, Oh, they killed the queer sex worker. Oh, they killed the queer this. Like, everyone in this movie is a sex worker and queer like or they work in the sex work field the editor maybe doesn't explicitly do sex work but they edit pornography you know what i mean like that's their job and so there's you know you when you really start to look at it that way it kind of makes it makes it feel different and i and i want to put that out there because i know there's hesitation in wanting to see something where gay people or sex workers are dying. And, and this film does it in a way that I found it to be less offensive, less hurtful for me uh, and my personal view of that, because all the living characters are in the same boat. It's not just Mm -hmm. that one character who died. It's everyone, you know? And I, I really found that perspective extremely unique because I can't think of another film like this that has i mean such a deep queer perspective of where all of the characters are p- part of that community all the characters are you know sex workers and gay and whatever and like and like they a lot of them live and like a lot of them do end up potentially happy i don't know you know it doesn't necessarily dive into that but but i kind of think it it does leave the tropes a little bit even though it's looking at it from like an outside perspective, if you didn't see the movie and you maybe read the synopsis, it'd be like, Oh, the, all these sex workers and these queers die in this film. But like, it doesn't feel that way when you're watching it to me. I felt the same. I also felt that reasons that I think that we could talk about it as beautiful, not like, 
not just, hey, this movie looks good or, hey, this is good sound design uh, or, hey, this, that or the other that, you know, because you can also talk about something and it's just pleasant, you know, <laughs> like things can be aesthetically wonderful, yes. but they don't. Their beauty is a very specific emotion. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the beauty of this one is that it is queer in a very honest and heartfelt way because yeah. of all these human characters who are yes. queer. You're seeing mm-hmm. the humanity involved in that. And Anne herself and even bad. has her philosophies there where she's talking to, uh, you, if you recall, she has that guy that she uh, um, recruits who's on the yes. construction yard. And yeah. he says, oh, oh I'm, I'm not queer. I don't really want to be a part of that. And she said, look, the worst that's going to happen is you're going to have some pleasure. Do you really mind that? And you get paid to have it. And it just shows how, what does it fucking matter what people do for their own ideologies and pleasure? And and she, yeah. her worldview is really just like, we're all looking for pleasure in our own way and where you do it and how you do it and what gives you your necessity in life really shouldn't matter to everybody else. So what is the shame? And I thought that was such a powerful offhand comment that they throw it in was this a movie. cool comment yeah, yeah it was a cool comment and in the end honestly i think he was kind of he did was kind of queer he goes yeah, to the queer cool. theater and in the end he ends up he goes in the the dark room which is exactly a room where you get a flashlight and you have a, a sex anonymously with people in this mm-hmm. club and so like you know he was you know it's a gay theater you know you were going in there to have sex with other men so you know that he did end up wanting to pursue and continue gay sex and he was yeah. in you know interested so you know that that is in there but he definitely denies it at first he's like no i'm not a yeah. fairy or something i think he says i'm not a fairy or something right yeah so he you know he has an internalized homophobia uh but i and you know as, as you were saying you know, with him finally exploring that part of himself as well and opening up it's a wonderful thing at the end of the film to, to be like yep it, they were all queer. This is he was the, queer. we're in a queer yeah. world, you know. It's just that they, everyone was queer, and and you know, and Anne's like, oh yeah, just be queer, just yeah. do it. Who cares? Like, <laughs> like she oh she says you'll die, you'll die better or something. I can't remember mm-hmm. what it is. Like you'll be smarter after or something. Like yeah, I think it's you'll be smarter after. It's yeah. like you'll just be, you'll be smarter, and it's like oh that's you'll know more about like, the yourself. And you'll the world. just know exactly. Yeah, like and that's such an interesting perspective to have on sexuality for sure. I also feel that, it, yes, of course, it's easy to get caught up in this feeling of, well, there's it, it doesn't have queer hate necessarily from a filmic perspective, but you can read it as such from your own perspective, depending on how these sorts of topics hit you. But I think what makes it different for this film is that it, you use the word right, tropes. There are tropes, yeah. but I don't feel that there are a lot of stereotypes in this film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because there's no punching down or looking down. It's it's very clearly not just some straight or cis perspective that's trying to emulate something that they don't understand. Because then the cop, the for one, you would indeed try to really make such a big deal of like, why aren't they helping us? Oh, no, this cop won't help me. And you'll make that big political statement out of that when I love the kind of like, this is reality. So in reality, they go, of course they won't. And then she just handles mm-hmm. her shit herself. It's not a yeah. big, it's not, I mean, it is a big deal socially, but it's not a big deal within the world of the film because I mean, queer spaces are used to being ignored by other spaces. So exactly. They just already expect that the police aren't going to care or aren't yeah. going to you know, pay attention. 
Um, there was a part, there was a scene though, where Anne wakes up on, on a bench in the bar and the mm-hmm. woman at the bar hands her a newspaper and on the cover of the newspaper is a picture of Misha dead in the woods. Hmm. And, and I was like, Oh my God, like they did not put that on the front of a, of a newspaper. Uh, but that was, but that was so fitting. I mean, 1979 and just, I mean, they're like literally just sprawling dead. It reminds me of like watching um, night. This is a weird comparison, but it's just another scene that pops mad when I think of these types mm-hmm. of scenes in films. Nightmare on Elm Street has a scene where, um, where uh, Nancy wakes up and she goes downstairs and she's watching TV and it shows like, them removing a body from the crime scene and her her friend's arm just like falls out of oh. the the stretcher and is like hanging all bloody and but they show that on the news and i was like i was like would they actually show in the in the 1980 like would they show that on the news i don't know but i anyway the newspaper scene kind of reminded me of that but um but with the queer community and in 1979 they they probably didn't have okay they probably didn't care you know, they probably yeah. just didn't care. And I don't know if they gendered Misha correctly in the newspaper because you don't see it very long. No. You just briefly see it. But I would not be surprised if there was some commentary about like about that in there, you know. Especially if it's front page, you know, you're going to find your sensation in something. And in 1979, let's face it, the sensation of the time was oh, picking yeah. apart anybody who was other. So, yeah, absolutely. Trans, queer sex worker murdered in the woods. Here's a picture, you know, I mean, it's so fitting. Uh, also, I mentioned this bar scene a few times now, but the introduction to those trans characters right before they walk into the bar, there's a woman who's like, Oh, I put me in your movies. And the guy says like, even our girls have dicks or something. And then, mm-hmm. and then, and then you meet all the trans women who later on you do see them doing sexual acts. So it does talk about that a little bit in there. And so yeah. it's just, it's just very like, the way they talk about trans people was super interesting, but the characters are lovable uh, and they're all queer. And I, I like that they had that space that they could go and be themselves. I do. I do think it would typically be a trope to make a trans person, a sex worker, Yeah. but because everyone was also a sex worker, if it doesn't feel as problematic in this film, which brings us back to that other thing we mentioned before with using those tropes in this film in a different way. Yeah. Exactly. The the repurposing of them to tell a different kind of more introspective story, I think, was a masterstroke for this film. Not to say there's no problems in it. There's definitely language oh, used in yeah. it that like uh, I, there's an argument that's been made in discourses these days that I kind of have to agree with as well. It's like just because something was true to life doesn't make it any less hurtful and it doesn't mean we have to keep emulating them. So absolutely language use and stuff. It's like, well, just because people would use a lot of homophobic language at the time doesn't necessarily mean you have to. Yeah, no, I know. And I've, I'm, I've all the slurs in this movie. I have said out loud in this podcast that is totally so far, uh, but like, but I also like, I'm comfortable saying them and mm-hmm. especially in this terminology. And like, I know who I am and I know like what my meaning behind those words are. But like, I will fully agree that like, you know, there, there's definitely a, a line drawn on what could, should and shouldn't be acceptable. And I also don't know what it's like in France or what mm-hmm. the modern use of these words are in France. Like, I think that I don't even think that they say 
gay almost at all. I think they say, no. I think they say fag every single time. Like they, they use that word a lot. They use that word a lot. And, um, but they're not using it. They're using it as like a slur on their, on themselves. Like they're like, Oh, we're this, That's like, true. you know? And true. so it's, it's very much used in that way. You never hear like, you know, cause there really is only one or two straight characters. So, like the, the police officers didn't say that, you know what I mean? It's very much like they're referring to themselves that way. And so that's what made it feel a little bit different for me. Mm-hmm. However, I'd be wrong to say, I mean, you know, like if we look at something like Gen Z going into seeing a film like this. Yeah. I mean, when I grew up, slurs like that were thrown around by people who shouldn't be using them all day long. I'm from rural Indiana originally. I'm in Colorado now, but out in Indiana, I mean, I I grew up in places where people said very inappropriate things and I was a child and, you know, there was a lot of slurs and a lot of that. And even as a teenager, there was uses of words that like, you know, you don't really say those things. I mean, you can see it in media, you know, something as obvious as like, you know, Bill and Ted, they say, they say fag in that movie. They like, Oh, Mm -hmm. and it's like it played off as a joke, you know, and that's such an iconic film. And those actors are known as, as being inclusive and like, you know, uh, good people as far as I'm aware and like supportive of this community. And yet no one thought twice about putting that in those films, you know, because it's just like at the time, no one cared where you look at this movie, 2019. And once again, I'm not from France, but here to put that in a film you have to be aware that it's it's not a language that's typically used or an appropriate language. However, being a queer film, all the people involved being queer, I don't know about the actors in real life, but the characters themselves, using that language does feel more acceptable and, and more real to me. Mm-hmm. In real life, when I'm in queer spaces, I hear people use this language about themselves. Sure. I hear people use slurs about themselves. And I think it's a way of taking it back for yourself. And I can respect that in, in a lot of different ways. But it's definitely something that I think some people can watch and feel uncomfortable, especially if they aren't queer or they aren't yeah. trans or they aren't this. Then they're hearing those words like, oh, shit, I, I can't even like I don't say those things like, uh, you know, that's inappropriate. Um, that's not we, the words we use. And I think that's a huge aspect of this film that I overlooked, honestly, until this conversation. And I want to make it clear, like I, I actually have no qualms with you using this terminology oh, or yeah. the film itself. It was more like my statement. And this is just for listeners as well. So they understand my statement is a very general statement that one of the criticisms that for modern filmmakers can be that it sometimes feels like he, you can put a film in a time period so you can get away with oh, yeah. the freedom of how you can express yourself or express your characters. But in this case, you're I'm right there with you with the, being such a queer film. And I, like you, I don't necessarily know the backgrounds of everybody who made the film, of course, but it didn't feel like it was abrasive or harsh to my ears. Um, now, granted, I haven't been using language, but uh, I am not, I don't feel personally in the position to use such language, but I've also yeah. like, I'm also in a, a weird liminal space on my own journeys through identity. Yeah. At the well, moment. you know, no one's going to ask you to say <laughs> no, and I like wouldn't. that unless you're comfortable, you know? So, you know, exactly. but uh, absolutely. Yeah, no, that completely makes sense. And I think it's a valid point to bring up. And I didn't mean when I mentioned Gen Z, I didn't necessarily mean that Gen Z was more sensitive or something because I don't want to sound that way. I'm just aware that over the last 30, 40 years, a lot of terminology and things have been removed 
as our culture shifts yes. change and as generations change you know i mean when i was a kid people would say the r word like just toss it every sentence it didn't matter and it that's something that it's something that like now no one like i mean no one that i want to be around uses that word no mm-hmm. one that i would want to associate with would would openly say those things because it's a slur and it's inappropriate you know, so you look at someone maybe who's 10 years younger, someone, you know, who's a teenager now, and they probably grew up in a world where that was already inappropriate. So if you're yeah. going to use something like that, they're going to be shocked. They're going to be surprised. And I think it's important to look at all different age groups and all different walks of life, especially when talking about language or slurs. I mean, because... I know people who found queer to be, uh, that used to be not acceptable. It used to be kind of a slur or not, you know, they didn't like that term at all, uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago, whereas now huge groups of this community refer to themselves as queer and that's like their umbrella term rather than gay or whatever. And that's, that's huge. So, I mean, it's very interesting conversation, totally valid. And I'm glad we talked about it. It's also why I brought it up because I also know that there are still pockets to this day that have not co-opted the term queer because they still have been. There are people who are still abused with the slurs and terminology, especially from, you know, people who do have that ignorance I was talking about before who don't take the steps to learn the world as it evolves. Um, Absolutely. So I can't imagine that if you come from that place, yes, this film's going to have some stuff in it that can rattle you uh yeah. no lie there that's a difficult film to watch uh for a lot oh, of people yeah. uh in fact I'm, i mean it's, it's traumatic a, it's a traumatic film perfect yeah. word for it and, and it looks at real real issues in this community yes in a very real ugly way absolutely it, it's you know i can imagine some people who may watch this after hearing this podcast thinking like well that sounds okay and then you see it you may wonder, like, where's this beauty we're talking about? Sure, there's a lot of pretty shots and stuff in it, but it is that ugliness for me that is so beautiful that somebody has decided to strip down humanity to such a level, and especially Absolutely. in a queer space. I just think it's not done enough that usually, you know, we've already mentioned it, usually it's tropes or stereotypes that are used to bring up political issues from queer perspectives. Or it would be more uh, a different genre, honestly. You know, usually you're going to get more like teen dramas or sapphic dramas that are going to explore that uh, facet of humanity more. In horror, it's a fairly new thing to not use queer as an othering and to make queerness just humanity. Absolutely. And this movie, like we've said, it really pulled that off. I mean, you can look at it and look at, Really, the conflict in this movie was a lot of internalized issues, a lot of traumatic experiences with these queer people from, uh, you know, and having uh, alcoholic problems um, and like being abusive in the queer community to their own partner. And then you flip to the reverse of that. You also have guy who was abused by a straight person and and burned and tortured in the love mm-hmm. of their life murdered because of a straight person but then you look at it in context of the film and you're only seeing this trauma from queer people and you almost have queer villains you you really have yeah you and do. i and i put villains in quotes um because it's not villainy uh, when uh, most of the time characters are two-sided, especially in this film. I mean, there is no black and white characters. You feel for Anne, despite her being such a 
a problematic character and doing all mm-hmm. these problematic things. And in the end, I really felt for Guy, despite him being a, like a, a murderer. I mean, he really had all these traumatic things happen. And to see that non-black and white characters, even the villain of, and, and once again, that's in quotes, even the 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 protagonists uh, and antagonists of this film all have more than one side and they're all queer. And that like that look into real people into real queerness into real society is what made this film so impactful for me. That seems like a perfect summation of what to take away from this movie. The gist of it is dear listener is please go check out knife and heart. You can, you can find it now on shutter. I don't know if that's a temporary one that they have on their listing. It's been there for a long time though. Yeah. It's on there in the UK too, I think. Okay. That's great. Uh, See, I I have a VPN, so I check out the American one as often as Uh I can. Uh, (laughs) Hey, it's my my home as well. But But, yeah, so if if it's not there in the UK, maybe get a VPN and check it out. Uh, Or get the Blu-ray. It's out. You can uh, purchase this thing as well. I think it's on Blu-ray. Yeah, you can Mm -hmm. buy it. Uh, So, But do make sure to check it out. Although we did go into quite a few spoilers, I can say that this film is an experience. So... Oh yeah. No spoiler. Than that. Exactly. It's far deeper than anything that we could ever philosophize here on this podcast. Uh, do you have any final words you'd like to say, or do you think we've uh, kind of capped it off nicely? I mean, as far as the movie goes, it's sick. Check it out. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Perfectly succinct. Then I'm going to wrap things up real quick. Like, so this podcast is a part of the anatomy of a screen pod squad. Be sure to follow the anatomy of screen podcast page on your preferred podcast platform to check out more introspective, semi-academic and fun podcasts, including the screen teens hosted by gory, Corey and Lena monster books hosted by Jessica Scott and much more. You can find more info at anatomyofascream.wordpress.com. If you are interested in hearing more of my musings on beauty and horror, or just horror in general, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore shockaholic, and you can find my written work at Ghoulish Media and Morbidly Beautiful. Be sure to keep track of the podcast on Twitter and Facebook at Beauty Horror Pod. I want to thank Tin again for having this chat with me, which has been a phenomenal exploration into queer spaces and passion and beauty and everything is just as rich as the film is this conversation has been so where can the peeps find you and is there anything you want to plug right now yeah so you can find me um on social media at blue iris zero four i'm most active on twitter you can also find all the links through my social media on my patreon which is patreon dash tenbaki i have a lot of writing up on there I uh, have an upcoming book, which you mentioned earlier, called Transploitation. I've got a full team of amazing writers, amazing creators. My co-editor-in-chief, Ren Crane. You can follow our book on Twitter at TransploitBook or on Instagram, TransploitationBook. And we're going to have so many cool announcements coming up soon with that. I'm also going to be speaking on a panel soon about the movie Bit. So if uh, if when this is out, hopefully that's out as well or about to be out. Uh, and that'll be that'll be on Fright Gown, so you could probably watch it. Hopefully after the festival, if if it's too late, then you can check out uh, my other podcast that I'm going to be doing soon after this, which will hopefully be out soon. And I'm just excited about all the cool upcoming projects I have. I also did mention I have music everywhere. I'm going to stop there. Check out all my links on my social media. 
Yes, check everything she's got going on, guys. Uh, Ten, it's been wonderful. Thank you so much. Yes. And thank you, dear listener, for joining us in talking about the beauty that lurks within the horrible. Goodbye. Squad.